0: Hello and welcome to Fourth Estate, a show about journalism. We are coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. I'm Tina Quinn. In this edition, I speak with Todd Heisler, an American photojournalist whose work has won him both a Pulitzer Prize and an Emmy Award. Todd was born in Arlington Heights, Illinois and grew up in and around Chicago After graduating from Illinois State University in 1994, he went on to work for a number of local newspapers before joining the Rocky Mountain News in Denver, Colorado in 2001. Todd was part of the Mountain News team that won a Pulitzer for their coverage of the Colorado wildfire season in 2003. His 2006 photographic work on the essay Final Salute won him the Pulitzer Prize for feature photography. In December of that year, he joined the New York Times as a staff photographer, where, amongst many other things, he has covered every U.S. election and primary season since 2007. He joins me now from New York. Todd Heisler, welcome to Fourth Estate.
1: Uh, Thank you. Pleasure to be here.
0: As I mentioned, you've covered just about every U.S. election over the last 13 years. It must seem like a ridiculous question, but how has 2020 compared to the ones you've previously covered?
1: Um, No, it's not a ridiculous question. 2020 uh, couldn't be more different than than any of the other years uh, for, for a number of reasons and it, and it keeps it, it keeps evolving It's been uh, quite an extraordinary and unprecedented year um, and it started started out that way even before the pandemic hit We were covering the Iowa caucus in January which is what kicks off the primary season in the United States and that had a totally different, uh, vibe this year as well because of the impeachment hearings that were happening, and uh, four of the candidates on the uh, Democratic ticket for the primary uh, were senators, so they were not in I- Iowa campaigning for most of that time. Uh, so that changed uh, the dynamic considerably. So uh, this the year just started off in a in a very uh, strange way. Little did we know that the that it would get stranger. The pandemic, which brought a a normal campaign season to a screeching halt, for all intents and purposes. And from there, it was uh, a completely different summer, at least for part of it. Along the way, the uh, political conventions, which is when um, really the campaigns kick into high gear in in the summer, toward the end of the summer, uh, were vastly different. The Democrats the Democrats held a convention that was almost entirely virtual. And uh, on the Republican side, uh, part of it was virtual and it was capped with an in-person event at the White House, which is also unprecedented. Uh, moving on from there, uh, the events were uh, unlike we've seen before in terms of the uh, uh, taking precautions for COVID, uh, Biden's events were mostly uh, drive-in events, where they were done outside, people, people drove their cars in, they were to remain uh, in their car or near their car, and he or one of his surrogates, like Dr. Jill Biden, his wife, or uh, former President Obama, would, would speak to the crowds on a stage, and, and instead of applause, you'd hear cars honking. Uh, so uh, I had never seen anything like that before. And it was also very challenging to photograph because your normal cues of applause and noise um, usually guide you to where the images are, but um, often you'd look out and just see a sea of cars. So it it was a a, a unique experience. On the Republican side, President Trump was still doing in-person events with uh, very little distancing, but it was still uh, a, a very different year.
0: Pre-pandemic, there was already a great sense that Donald Trump was very likely to sail to another victory. When you were able to hit the road again in October, were you already getting a sense from your experiences with people on the ground at campaign stops and rallies that something had indeed shifted since the pandemic? I would say I,
1: I, I would say that there was a sense all along that uh, President Trump could be reelected. Uh, I think this this year, I, mean, I think the difference between 2016 and now, I think you certainly saw more uh, Trump signs out and about, and a, a new thing that you would see uh, uh, are, are Trump flags. Um, you certainly saw those in 2016, but you saw way more this year, and in a, a new dynamic of of this campaign season, uh, where the truck rallies and the in the the uh, Convoys, both both uh, both supporters for both candidates were doing this, but you were more likely to see uh, Trump supporters do this. You have flags and pickup trucks and you know driving around town or or you know meeting up in a in a in say like a Target or Walmart parking lot and you know having a having a parade or or convoy through a town. Um, That's something you didn't see a lot of in in 2016, and you know I would say even. The, the pandemic notwithstanding, I, I would say, you know, being out and about as late as October, uh, I at least visually saw, saw quite a lot of uh, what looked like support for President Trump. So, um, and let's not forget, more than 70 million people voted for him as well. So um, I think turnout played a, played a big factor in this year as well.
0: Mm, he, he still managed quite an extraordinary turnout. One thing that I've I've noticed in your work is that you don't spend as much time covering the actual candidates themselves, but more so their supporters. What attracts you to covering those on the fray? You, you obviously find them more compelling in a sense.
1: Yeah, and, and I should clarify too. I do, I for the most part, I, I you know, I do whatever is needed at any given time. So there have been been stints that I've done. Following, um, following the candidate and doing what we would call, you know, on candidate coverage. Um, it's a lot more controlled, and access, you know, gets tighter and, and tighter. It seems with each campaign season. But I do always prefer to be on the on the periphery and uh, you know on the fringes of any story. Uh, I think if you look at a lot of my work, I like to take larger news stories and take a granular look at them you know through the through the lives of people being affected by it and i like to do the same thing with politics i find uh you you can get a a more genuine look at it and uh you get away from uh what i would call the show is you know campaign events are a show and they're um they're choreographed to some degree and they're all designed a certain way and and if you do cover uh a particular campaign for weeks or months on end, they they do start to look uh, the same after a while. So you, you do anything you can to, to find some variety to give readers uh, a different sense of of what things are looking like and feeling like out there.
0: I, I recently watched a keynote speech you gave a number of years ago, and, and you spoke of how ever since you had been in college, people had predicted the death of photojournalism, but that what you would learn time and time again, even though the general public is often inundated with imagery, one photograph still has the power to make people stop. Now, one photograph that certainly comes to my mind is one that was part of a sequence of photos that you took on election night in 2016. It was of a man in the overflow section of the Javits Centre where Hillary Clinton had been expected to give her acceptance speech. And it was towards the end of the night or in the early hours of the morning and he was on the ground crying. Can you tell us a bit more about that photo and perhaps about that night?
1: All the polls were were pointing to Hillary Clinton being the first female president of the United States. And that was the mindset going into that evening. And when we plan an event like that, um, you have a number of fixed positions in the event space. And so you would have what would be A center stand that would go, you know shoot straight towards the podium. You would have a cutaway which would be to the side You would have somebody that's actually traveling with the candidate. Um, that year we had uh, doug mills traveling with hillary clinton And maybe a few other people just roaming and you have a um, um, An editor a photo editor in this case. It was jessica dimpson who did an amazing job of of moving the pieces around the board to put the right people in the right place. And we had a conversation leading up to that night where, you know, she gave me the option, but also a suggestion of where she'd like me to be. And that's, that's what a great picture editor can do. They, they know your work and your personality and they, they can kind of nudge you (laughs) where, where they'd like you to be. And you know she gave me the option she said you can i can put you on a center stand you'll get the potentially the page one picture that's pretty straightforward but what i'd really like you to do is be outside and try to find something that's a little different uh, you know we always strive for something i hate to use the word iconic but that's you know what you're always striving for but this just to try to find something different and maybe you know maybe it's somebody who couldn't get inside but you know you you always work the edges of these things to to take a chance and try to get something that that nobody else has, and I'm always up to that task because that's the type of work I like to do. I don't like to be stuck in one spot, and um, being set on a center center stand can be a little boring. So uh, I jumped at the chance to try to do something different. As you know, as the night starts, Hillary Clinton is starting to win states, and you see people celebrating. But maybe after about nine nine thirty. Um she's losing states that um she was expected to win, and you could see the faces uh in the crowd um just telling that story and just reflecting the reality of the news that was that was breaking right there
0: yeah it really puts lie to the myth that she didn't inspire passion like Donald Trump did or or uh, on the other side candidates like Bernie Sanders or, or president Barack obama
1: oh oh absolutely and i I had covered her a, a little bit that year and and obviously as we discussed I covered her in in two thousand eight as well and um the 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 energy and and um the passion for her was evident at at all of her rallies so there's no question that there 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 was um um, incredible support for her.
0: So then how did you come across this man uh, in the overflow section of the Javits Center who was on the ground so clearly agonized by the way the night had gone?
1: I ended up just staying in that that hallway all night, even when most people left. I think this photograph was taken about 1.30, 2 o'clock in the morning when when most people had had realized that you know the candidate was not going to come out and speak to the crowd. The night was over. Donald Trump won the presidency, and that was it. And just before I was about to leave, I took one more pass through the hallway as uh, people were leaving. and it was getting darker. and i and I saw this situation. and it was um, pretty reflective of of how everybody in that room was feeling that night.
0: Did you realize at the time that uh, the American flag was actually reflecting? off the floor uh, next to this man it, it seemed like you framed the shot perfectly it was his head was in his hands he was on the ground crying and next to him was this reflection of the american flag um, and it seemed there was a great poetry to it which seemed to represent the, the great turmoil that was within america and, and, and i guess you know still is
1: uh, thank you yeah i i I did, if I recall, I, I did because you could see. I think I, I photographed it wide, so you could actually see the flag and the setup in the empty room, and then was able to zoom in a little bit and, and get a couple of tighter shots, shots that abstracted the flag a little bit more, so it was a little less literal. And I think ultimately that that was the the frame that resonated better than the than the more literal uh, wide shot.
0: Look I'm going to go back a little bit now, so I'm sure you've been mm-hmm. asked this before. Was there a specific moment or a point in your life where you decided that you wanted to be a photojournalist or was it something that you you wanted as early as you could remember?
1: i think I, I'm trying to think of uh photographs you know I, I i was I was interested in photography as a teenager in high school and um I, th- I think one thing that was really moving to me early on when I was a teenager, we visited the uh, Vietnam War Memorial in Washington, D.C., and it just so happened that we we made this trip on Memorial Day weekend, and it was uh, packed with, with people visiting, and I remember it was just a really uh, moving experience to witness, and I was... Learning how to photograph in a situation like that. And I remember making a photograph of these these two men embracing and um, I, I think I think from that point, maybe I, I didn't even know what photojournalism really was. I didn't really know uh, What you could do with it, but I just remember remember that moment of of Being able to articulate what a what an experience felt like through a photograph I think is what Clicked for me and and, and pushed me uh, in that direction, but I think it from there it took took many years after that to really find my place in it and really find what I could do with it.
0: Once you realised that you wanted to become a, a photojournalist, were were there any great heroes that you looked to that uh, you know inspired you in a way or informed the the sort of work that you thought you wanted to do?
1: Yeah, at that time, as uh, uh, you know each uh, generation of photojournalists learn from and are inspired by the, the generation just right before them. So for me, coming out of college in the early 90s, um, you had the, the Bosnian war happening at that time. And um, the, the great photographers were um, James Noctway, uh, Christopher Morris, um, Ron Haviv, um, so, you know, so many others that, 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 I'm forgetting, um, uh, different conflicts, but similar, uh, generation, you know, like Maggie Stieber, um, people um, who shot a lot for national geographic at that time and did a lot of amazing work in Haiti. Uh, these are the people that, you know, like you looked up to and that you, um, you know, you, you might be, even be able to meet them somewhere. And that was, that was, um, that was something that was really inspiring at that time that pushed, pushed me along. Um, Not necessarily, you know, I didn't necessarily want to do that type of work, but that was the work that, that really stood out of that time. And these were people who were going to the, to the, to the edge of the abyss to, to really tell that story. And, and for me, that was really uh, inspiring.
0: You said that you, you didn't necessarily want to do uh, some of the work that, some of your heroes had had done in terms of you know going and covering conflict zones and 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 so forth. What what sort of work did you want to do? Uh, what sort of things did you want to cover as a photojournalist?
1: I did want want to do that at first, but I I think what I the work I really wanted to do was you know at a, at a younger age coming out of college I I was interested in politics for sure. I loved the work of um, like. Stephen Crawley from the New York Times and, and um, P.F. Bentley, who did a lot of great behind the scenes uh, presidential work. And um, Christopher Morris later was doing that as well. Uh, Callie Schell. Uh, so I was interested in that, but I just, I guess I never really had, it It, did, it really didn't matter where it, it was. It was that I wanted to be able to say something with my work that, that, you know, maybe gives, Gives the viewer, the reader, a, a deeper understanding of somebody they didn't ha- that that they they hadn't met, and to uh, to encourage empathy, uh, among other things. And I think that's that's what I was always um, really drawn to uh, stories stories like that.
0: Jumping ahead a little bit, then to two thousand and six, you you won the Pulitzer Prize for feature photography for your series Final Salute. And it covered U.S. Marines whose job it is to break the bad news of a soldier's death to their families. Can you tell me a little bit about that assignment and how long you spent working on it and how well you got to know these Marines?
1: Yeah, and, and that's I think that's a really good example of, of what I was referring to. And um, it, it, that story, for me, exemplifies a lot, a lot of what I've learned as a person and a photojournalist and and. What I want to build on moving forward, um, one of which was I, you know, started when the Iraq War started. I, I I covered it in a couple of different trips, and that was the 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 story of that time. And uh, you know, a, a number of my peers had had covered that war extensively, much more than I. But um, I really wanted to. Uh, to cover that war and 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 um, just just for the sake of history, if nothing else. And what I didn't realize is that there there was a way to tell that story without ever having to go there. And that's what this story was. And I think a, a, a lot of uh, great stories find you as much as you find them. And um, you know, this is a perfect example of that. I started working on that story with uh, Jim Sheeler, who uh, was an amazing writer, uh, was at the Rocky Mountain News at the time. And he was uh, doing obituary, excuse me, Jim Sheeler was writing uh, profiles of of service members who were killed in the Iraq war. And he had spent so much time in this veteran cemetery. um, He met uh, Major Beck who was doing a lot of this casualty assistance work. And he had approached him about, about following him and, and really getting a closer look behind the Marines that were, that were doing this, this really solemn duty. And uh, eventually he, Major Beck capitulated and, and allowed us to um, follow him, um, but it was a long journey. It was something that we thought would be a, a two week assignment. And ultimately, we spent about a year on it.
0: I guess there's a lot of preconceived notions about those that work in, in defense and the armed forces. Did it break down any uh, stereotypes or prejudices that you yourself had about those that worked in defense? I mean, you're, um, it's a very c- cerebral profession that you're in. And I would think that uh, you'd be meeting completely different types of people to, to yourself.
1: I think it, I think it certainly helped that I had been to Iraq a couple of times uh, before that uh, with the families and with the, the Marines that we were with. I think they 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 knew or at least felt that I had a better understanding of like what they go through. I hope that it broke down some stereotypes. I, you know I, my guiding principle is that at the end of the day we're all human beings and we all want the same basic things out of life and I think, you know you can usually find common ground with just about everybody Um, that doesn't mean any any one photographer or journalist is the right fit for any other situation but that's what you strive for in in this profession and um, you, you do want to you need the access and and the trust of of all the people involved to allow you the space and the time to to document this in a way that's respectful, but also in a way that, that um, makes people want to spend time with the image to hopefully learn more about the people in it. And that's always a very delicate balance because you, you, um, great photography is about aesthetics and that's what draws people in but I think if you if you lean too heavily on that then it's more about the photographer than the people in the photograph and so I'm always trying to be aware of that balance and and not make that so much about me and what I'm trying to say it's about telling their story and showing
0: them the BBC's Nick Bryant was recently on Fourth Estate and in talking about elections and uh, and presidential candidates uh, he He mentioned that journalists often choose their presidential story, and the most entertaining always wins out. He used as an example, uh, during the 2007-2008 primary season, much of the media decided that electing Barack Obama, the first African-American man to win both the Democratic nomination and then hopefully the presidency, uh, that seemed a more compelling story than uh, electing Hillary Clinton, uh, the first female. Um, now, that was your, uh, it strikes me, that was probably the first election that you covered for The Times. Uh, am I correct? The first primary season that's, you would
1: have covered? That's that's correct. Absolutely. Yeah, 2008. Well, 2007, actually, because yeah. uh, Hillary Clinton announced her candidacy in early 2007. So 2008 primary season was a very long protracted fascinating uh primary and at the time i had never really covered a primary that um thoroughly before um because where i worked before you know we didn't really cover those much and we had a uh because there were so many candidates and it it, it was an open would it was an open year in that you had uh, Republicans and Democrats both having primaries because George W. Bush was finishing his second term. And I worked uh, a lot with uh, David skull at the time, who was the picture editor heading up our campaign coverage. And the times decided they were going to put a photographer on each one of these candidates for as long as that candidate remained in the race. And so in, in January, starting in Iowa, they put uh, I I couldn't even tell you off the top of my head how many how many candidates there were but um, they were in the double digits and so initially they put me on Mike Huckabee uh, right. Republican candidate who was the governor of Arkansas and uh, I think Doug Mills was on Hillary Clinton. And I forget who was on uh, Barack Obama at the time. And so the plan was to just write it out with that candidate until they concede. And then we would move people around accordingly. And um, for me, I liked covering a candidate like Huckabee because there was less, he didn't have a secret service detail yet. He wasn't quite the front runner and those are fun to cover because, you know, you can move around more, you get better access, you can walk backstage, you can, you know, you can There's more follow the bus around. Yes, more spontaneity. It's, it's, uh, it's more genuine. And sometimes it's just a matter of getting different angles can make it more interesting. Um, when you, you know, when you can't go behind or move to the left a certain way, the light doesn't look right. I mean, all these little things that just, you um, makes can make your coverage flat or more compelling and so you know you you make these decisions about which candidate you want to cover for a lot of various reasons um you know some of which are barack obama had this really great narrative that ultimately in hindsight um made obviously for 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 great stories but for great images as as well um i didn't actually cover him very much. <laughs> so I went from, from Mike Huckabee to uh, Hillary Clinton and followed her from uh, uh, before Super Tuesday. So sometime in, in February all the way through June um, up to the, the last primary when she ultimately lost. But the, they were neck and neck for the entire time. So it was a very long primary season.
0: And very close, obviously.
1: Yes, correct. I think the campaigns were were different at that time too, because, yeah, in in, in 2008, those were not only only was it a long, protracted uh, primary, but it was grueling. Um, We would very often cover two or three states in a day, get to your hotel very late at night or even early in the morning and then have to go back at it and be swept with secret service at
0: seven o'clock in the
1: morning the next day. So it was, it was, it was a really grueling grueling campaign season to cover.
0: Do you feel that you've either consciously or unconsciously chosen a narrative as a photojournalist, or do you think it works a little bit differently for you?
1: I think it works a little bit differently for us. I mean, I mean, there's no question that you, you don't, you don't cheer for a candidate, you know, there's the old saying, there's no cheering in the press box. So you, you know, you can't, um, you can't look at it that way, but you do have to, to look at it in some ways of, of whether you're going to click with a certain campaign and, it and, you know, it's hard to really describe what that would be. Um, you know, it's not about like your political opinions or, or, you know, their policy. It's sometimes it's a matter of the, the people that work for them and do you, you know, have you known them from other campaigns? And do you think that you could uh, be able to get some access or move around or, or work with them? And and so it becomes a, a fit in that way. Um, but yeah, I think you, you also have to look at it in that you might pick a candidate and say, well, I think this person has a chance to go very far and, You wanna be in early so you have the access to tell that whole story of whoever that candidate is. So I think we might look at it more in those terms. Um, And I guess you could say that's uh, choosing a narrative, so to speak, but I think you have to be cautious with that, um, that concept, I guess.
0: Mm, mm. Absolutely. And what is that like when you when you switch from covering a campaign like Governor Mike Huckabee's to then covering the one for the then Senator Clinton?
1: When you when you jump from one campaign to another, there's always a a, a, a period that you need to get up to speed and get comfortable and get to know everybody and and just kind of get get a feel for the rhythm. Uh, I would say because. Um. Hillary Clinton was uh, much more well known at the time um, and um, had been campaigning for longer. I think there was there was a, a more uh, intense rhythm there. And um, obviously there's there's a greater infrastructure involved because she's a former first lady and uh, senator uh, at the time. Um, there's much more security. Um, she has secret super service, service detail. detail. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so you can't just walk up to an event and, and you know, five minutes before it starts and find a spot and, and start working. Um, you have to get there early. You have to be swept. Um, sometimes you might be um, put, in, put in a pen for a period of time and then, you know, you have to work with the campaign to move around. So, so you know, right off the bat, it's it's very different. Um, and then just, you know, obviously the, the, the events are much, much bigger and there's more of them. And then as you, as that, that particular year, 2008, uh, was, was just such an aggressive, uh, primary, um, the number of events in the, in, in the number of states that, that she was doing was just a- astounding.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: just the, the, the energy level, um, was hard, hard to keep up with. Mm-hmm. I think you see that with. With 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 any 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 um, any campaign at that point, but um, any any great campaigner, um, you'll see there's a pace there that that is pretty remarkable.
0: Yeah, the stamina required is quite phenomenal, in, in terms of the schedule they keep, you know, I often think uh, jumping back ahead a bit to election night in 2016. Hillary Clinton must have had an hour or two sleep before uh, getting having to get up and then prepare and then present her concession speech all by seven a.m. I think it was the following morning. What
1: Absolutely, is- I, and I would say too, I, we had we had spoken a, a little bit about picking a campaign and and you know kind of deciding where to be or where you click with. It's always, I think, I think what what most uh, photographers like to do is try to link up with a campaign very early and get to know them. One because you know, say you you connect with a, a campaign in Iowa. If they're not a former first lady or somebody with a Secret Service detail, um, you know you, you can work these small events. You can move around, and then you can really get to know the campaigns and 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 be with it as it grows and and follow it. You know through its course. And, um, I, I think back to like some great, as long as we're on the subject of the Clintons, some great campaign photography that came out in Bill Clinton's first run in 92. Um, Oh, that was remarkable. Yeah. Remarkable images from, uh, um, from New, uh, from New Hampshire, uh, uh, when he was the underdog and the just be, the behind the scenes photography and you know just his energy and his stamina is just comes through in all these images so you know those are the types of things you can you can get early on um, if you if you pick the right candidate and you click with them etc that's the challenge of uh, campaign photography at any time even if you do have some behind the scenes access you still have to show Uh, what the stagecraft looks like and, and what, what the events look like. And, and so, you know, it's your job to try to look behind the curtain a little bit, or just to try to try to show like how it's put together or, or just kind of give something that's, that's a little different than that, that perfect straight on angle that, that just gets flat after a while.
0: In terms of, you've mentioned clicking with a campaign um, and how that can really affect access and such. As you've just mentioned, you've covered Secretary Clinton now during her 08 primary run and her 2016 election bid. And I know her team already are quite protective of their candidate, but in particular, the, the Clintons' relationship with the New York times has always been somewhat strained and it really goes back to the the whitewater days in the 1990s. In terms of access, how did you find dealing with them in 08 compared to 2016? Because she had a lot of the same staffers and, and aides working for her.
1: Yeah, I would say it's, it was um, maybe, maybe about the same, uh, maybe a little better in, in 2016, but I, I didn't know, I didn't notice a, a huge difference. and, and, you know, I, sh- I should also say, y- you know, my experience and my level of access is much different from uh, a writer and what they need to get to do their job. So, um, you know, my access can depend on being able to move around events, being able to get in- into events, you know, how willing the campaign is to, to-, to get you in-, in different places that go beyond just the center stand. So um, that that's the real mark of, uh, of a campaign, you know, that's willing to, to, to work with still photographers specifically.
0: And does it, how does it work in terms of, do you often accompany a reporter yet you just sometimes are able to go that, that bit further? Or do you uh, act as a lone ranger?
1: Most often we will work separately uh, because they might be um, reporting an event um, offsite or they might, they might be in the travel pool, but they would be reporting from, from a different area. And I'm moving around a lot. So we work, uh, pretty separate in those times, unless there's a particular narrative they're looking for, or perhaps a particular demographic or, or, or theme at the campaign events, you know, we'll communicate about those things, but, but More often than not, I'm working more closely with other photographers that I'm competing with than I would be with the writers.
0: Right. Okay. Getting away from campaigns and politics a little bit, because I know obviously there's there's so much more that you do and cover. But what are the moments that have stayed with you the most? Do you think, in terms of the events that you've covered, from the, you know the Colorado wildfires of 2003 to the Iraq War to the Weinstein—I I think it was when he was first indicted in 2018—or is it is it something even something that people? would would find less remarkable that that has somehow had an effect on you?
1: For me, it's it's the small things that that really stay with me. I'm always left with I'm a big fan of the work of the writer Studs Turkle, who's a Chicago writer who who did a lot of um oral history and he had this this quote where he says he likes to look at history from the ground up. And he says how everybody talks about the pyramids and how the pharaohs built the pyramids. And he said, the pharaohs didn't lift a finger. It was slaves who built the pyramids. And he's more interested in the people who really did it on the on the ground level. And so I, I'm always uh, fascinated at, at looking at, at uh, moments like that. And, and I think those are the ones that, that really resonate with me the most. Whether it's, um, I think about... I mean they are happy stories of course I mean there's one one particular piece I worked on a couple of years ago in New Hampshire about the opioid epidemic and I worked with uh the writer Kit Seeley, partly following a a family that, that was you know dealing with addiction two of the children um were addicted to, to opioids heroin and you know being there with the family when they were, you know, confronting the confronting the son for how many how many I don't know how many ODs he had had, and he had had an OD the night before, and then trying to get him to to go into recovery again, and um, you know it was a very intense scene, um, but you're also there being somehow welcomed by this family to 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 show what they're going through. And this is, you know, looking at a larger issue that is affecting the United States and communities all over. And um, you're sitting in this this living room, watching it play out, thinking how many different ways is this playing out right now across this country? I was just looking through images from, from this year, and obviously there's so many I could probably go back to from previous years, but in working on this story about the New York city of our imagination, um, just capturing the, the sounds of the city in, in, you know, during the pandemic. And as we're sort of kind of coming out of, of the dark days of April, I went to this street party in Clinton Hill, Brooklyn, and uh, there was a DJ on that block and all throughout the, the, the stay at home orders at seven o'clock every night, he would come out and, and play, play house music. And people would go in the street and have this like social distance dance party. And it could go anywhere from like 10 minutes to 45 minutes. And one of my colleagues had told me about it. And I, and I went to this party and it was, it, for me, it was like watching everybody come together and, Seeing every everybody dance, it just um, it was that first moment coming out of you know the the dark days of of March and April, and and realizing like oh you know wow we're gonna get through this and you know that that New York and Brooklyn still has it. I remember I remember thinking like wow Brooklyn you still got it. And that that was like a really special uh, moment for me.
0: That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Do you live in Brooklyn? or you? um, I do.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. So this this was in June. Yeah. And uh, you know, some some time had passed, but you know, I mean, that's it's what I get to do with this job. I get to I get to go experience things that you know many people don't get to, and it's part of my job is to, to be curious and to just go check things out.
0: Finally, uh, this has been so fascinating, Todd. Finally, how do you think the work that that you've done over the number of the last number of years has changed the way you see the world? How has it informed your view, I, especially in the last 12 months? I mean, it, it it seems that you have run the gamut as a photographer come from elections to covering a pandemic, your your coverage of uh, New York during uh, this this time has been incredibly moving how has it sort of changed you the the work that you've done and informed your views well I think
1: I think over the, over the years and, and in if, if anything just for having uh, years of experience learning the technical parts of photography and photojournalism that that Falls into the background and becomes muscle memory, and, and it frees you up to to be more uh, aware as a person and be more engaged with with the 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 person in front of you and the, the people that are that are letting you into their lives. And I feel like um, that experience has has um, freed me up to a degree to really um, connect with people more. I think that was always, always the goal of mine. When I look back is, is that I wanted to connect with people and um, you know, share their story so that people can understand somebody that's very different from them. I think about some of the stories over the, over the past few years of covering um, the, uh, migration of Central Americans coming coming up from Honduras, Guatemala El Salvador and um, the family separations and and um, all the other things that have been happening in the US and I think it's just um, you know learning to spend more time with people and um, learning to listen more I think a good uh, a good lesson um, it sounds counterintuitive but I think a good lesson, uh, to learn as a photographer is is to learn when to put the camera down and, and listen and talk to people. And you'd be amazed at how many photographs come from doing that because each photograph is is a gift from the, the person you are documenting.
0: Well, that seems like a, uh, a good place to leave it as much as I hate to. Uh, this has been absolutely yeah. fascinating. So, Todd Heisler, thank you so much for joining us on Fourth Estate. Thank you. That was Todd Heisler, American photojournalist and staff photographer for the New York Times. And thanks for listening to Fourth Estate. This edition was recorded at the studios of TUICER and heard across the country on the Community Radio Network. Fourth Estate is produced with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation, thanks to the foundation for their continuing support. Make sure you subscribe to Fourth Estate on your favourite podcast app so you can hear us talk media, politics, and a lot in between. We'll be back with more next week. But in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter. Our handle is 4th Estate AU. Thanks to my producer, Anthony Dockrell. My name's Tina Quinn. Thanks for listening.